Uh, hi, this is uh, J.N. Campbell with New Books in Science, and uh, good morning to you. Uh, I've got a really interesting podcast for you today and hope you enjoy. Uh, New Books in Science, uh, this is a, a podcast with myself, J.N. Campbell, and a colleague of mine, Steve Rooney, that will be... Uh, sort of going forth, and this is the first installment of it. And I've got a really uh, great treat for you today because I have the editor and uh, also one of the authors of the Oxford Illustrated History of Science. And that's uh, a professor by the name of Ewan uh, Morris. And Dr. Morris, welcome to the program today. Uh, Thank you. It's It's a pleasure to be here. Well, great. Well, looking forward to hearing about this book because I found it really fascinating, and I think uh, the the listeners are too. Uh, Dr. Morris, can you tell us a little bit about your background, who you are, uh, where you hail from, and give us kind of the rundown, please, if you don't mind? Uh, certainly, no problem. Well, I'm Ewan Morris. I'm a historian of science, and I'm a professor at the at the, at the local university here at, at Aberystwyth University. Um, I was actually born and bred locally. I grew up in Aberystwyth. Um, I've been interested in science pretty much for as long as I can remember being interested in anything. Um, so I studied mainly science at school. Uh, I went to Emmanuel College, Cambridge, initially to study natural sciences. I, you know, I wanted to be a great physicist. I was going to be the next, the next Einstein. <laughs> right. But you know, going through university, I started to realize that whilst I was fascinated by science, I was more interested in, if you like, how science worked as opposed to doing science myself. So I switched to a program that they had, they're called History and Philosophy of Science. So I finished my first degree in HPS, um, moved on to do a, do a PhD in the history of science, looking really at, at a specific character in 19th century and Victorian science. Also Welshman, as it happens, William Robert Grove. If I'm allowed to give a plug to another book whilst I'm do there, it. I've, I've, just, do it. I've just actually published a biography of William Robert Grove, the University of Wales Press has a series called Scientists of Wales, and I've just published my biography of w- William Robert Grove, Victorian Gentleman of Science, with them. It's sold in the USA via University of Chicago Press, so you can get that. Okay. But anyway. Great. Pl- pl- oh, so we'll have to do that for another podcast then. Hopefully. hopefully, so. <laughs> hopefully so. Excellent. Right now, something I've always been interested in science, and what I'm really interested in is how how science works, how, if you like, science works as, as a cultural phenomenon. So, I mean, I, I worked in Cambridge for a while. I spent a year in the States. I spent a year at the University of, University of California, San Diego. Came back to the UK, worked at Queen's University, Belfast for a while. And then I, then I came back to Everest, and I've been here ever since. So I'm, a, I'm a historian of science. What I'm interested in is the cultural context of science. I'm interested in looking at how and understanding how science works as a, as a piece, piece of culture. In the end, how, how is it that we now, or at least most of us now, believe that science is the, way, is the best way of, of understanding the world around us? Because that's, you know, that's a relatively recent 
historical phenomenon. And yeah, that's one of the things that the, that the illustrated history of science explores, I think. Okay, good, good. Well, that, that's, a, that's a good introduction. And let's, let's sort of take that and because I've got a couple of early questions to sort of address some of the things that you already said. I mean, this is an interesting book, and we'll get into the heart of it and talk about how it's set up. But what what you've done here in the Oxford Illustrated History is very much in a focus, especially in your introduction, of of asking the question of what is science? And and that seems like maybe to some an elementary question, but it's really not because it's integral to how you're going to to put together this book, wouldn't you say? Um, yes, no, I, mean, I think that's that's absolutely so. But, yeah, that question, you know, what is science? If I, I mean, if I remember my introduction correctly, I mean, I, I started the introduction by remembering, I think, probably the first book in the history and philosophy of science that I read. Right. Called, What is this thing called science? And as you say, I mean, to most people, most of the, most of the time, as you say, it's an elementary question. It's, it's mm. kind of obvious. It's, yeah. it's science. It's how we go about finding out the truth. But you know, when you start interrogating that question you know, just a little bit more, then, well, it's not actually a very easy question to answer. There are answers that philosophers offer in terms, you know, largely in terms of, in terms of methodology, you know, what, the, what the best method might be for finding out the truth. The problem with those kinds of philosophical accounts of scientific method is that when you start comparing those sorts of accounts to what it seems that practitioners of science throughout the ages have actually done, which is, as a historian, what I, what I try to do, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, that, you know, those kinds of accounts don't really tend to match up very well. Um, if, if one looks at, say, you know, somebody like Isaac Newton did, you know, what he thought science was and how one went about, how, how it ought to go about doing science, it doesn't actually really match up very well to you know, the various philosophical accounts that we have as to how science ought to be done. So I guess in a sense, I mean, as a historian, in the end, my sort of slightly blunt instrument answer to the question of, you know, what is this thing called science? It's what scientists do. And mm. what scientists or men of science, practitioners, natural philosophers, the word scientist itself is quite a recent historical invention. The only thing at the end you can say is science is the sorts of ways in which humans really have tried to make sense of the world around them. And I would say that that, that urge to try and make sense, to try and understand the world around us, to, to understand what our place in nature and the universe is and how to manipulate the world around us, that's actually a pretty good definition, I think, of what it is to be human at all. I mean, that's what makes us human. Mm. You know, that, as far as we know, we're the only animals that do this. And I mean, even, I mean, even if you think about it, you know, how, you know, how do we go about you know, identifying our sort of our, our hominin ancestors from you know, hundreds or millions, hundreds of thousands or millions of years ago? It's typically by their use of tools, you know, by their attempts to do something to manipulate the world around them. So I think you know, science, the urge to understand, the urge to try and turn nature, nature to our own advantage, is something that's, that's, that's definitively and distinctively human. So understanding the history of science 
says the historian of science interestedly, you know, turns out to be actually, I think, absolutely fundamental to understanding who we are now and where we came from. So you would say, and I think you make this pretty clear in the introduction, and this, this might sound counterintuitive to some, but, but science is about humanity. Um, yes, I think that, that's absolutely so. You know, science is a thing that humans do. You know, right. The, you know, the strange people in white lab coats that we see on TV, you know, the kind of stereotypical images we have of you know, what scientists look like, their fundamental characteristic of the answer is that they're, is that they're human. You know, they're like us. They're driven by the same kind of urges and ambitions and desires and you know, wanting to know what things are like around them. That, you know, that drives you know, the curious among us, which I think also, you know, and it's, it's the humanity that makes science interesting, I think. Mm-hmm. And it's the humanity that should remind us that, you know, yeah, that, you know, that this stuff really matters. This, this isn't some kind of arcane stuff that strange people with funny hair you know, do right. in labs far away. This is stuff you know, that comes out of our modern culture. You know, the, sort, you know, the way that we do science now is a product of early 21st century industrial culture. You know, that's what supports right. you know, the source of science that goes on there. The science that was done in the past, you know, the science was done, you know, say, during the Victorian period, you know, which is my kind of main stomping ground as a historian. You know, that science was a product of Victorian culture and addressed the kind of ways that the Victorians wanted to make sense of the world sure. around them. It seems, and the, the, to sort of move to a, a, a secondary question beyond this, and, and to address the book itself, it's interesting that there hasn't been in the recent scholarship on the history of science a book like you have taken that you've taken part in editing. A book like this, and can you speak to the fact, or, or can you talk, tell our listeners a bit why you think that is? Because it would seem, based on the, the premises, premises and the standards that we just talked about for what we need to understand the history of science, that those uh, types of texts would be plentiful. But actually, and actually you sort of point this out in the introduction, they're, they're not, especially in recent scholarship. Um, Can you yeah, talk a little bit about that? Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think it's, it's an interesting historical phenomenon itself, I think. And you can, yeah. I mean, you, I mean, you can track it through the history of the history of science. Um, certainly, you know, when you, when you, when you go, go way back to the beginnings of people writing about the history of science in the 19th century, you, know, you have you know, people like William Hewell in England you know, writing books with ambitious titles like The History of the Inductive Sciences. Right. And that's a kind of huge, broad-ranging, wide-scope history of all of the sciences. And that kind of history really is the sort of typical history of science. I mean, up until the sort of you know, 1950s, 1960s. Um, I mean, certainly, if, I mean, if you look at the sorts of history of science books that are published in, in the immediately post-Second World War era, yeah, there's still these kind of big history. You know, sort of the origins of modern science is a, is a, is, is a famous example by Herbert Butterfield. Mm. But 
during the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, you get, if you like, a kind of cultural turn in the history of science where rather than using the history of science, if you like, as a kind of handmaiden of philosophy, as a kind of testing ground for this is how we see what really is scientific method, people started thinking more about culture. People started to realize more that particular kinds of science depend very, very much on the particular local context, the the local circumstances, the history, the culture in which that bit of knowledge is produced. And the outcome of that was this kind of upsurge in very, very focused historical studies. So also, I mean, you're not writing the history of physics. You're not writing the history of science. You're writing something like, I mean, my, I mean, my first book was on the history of electricity in mm. early Victorian London. So, you know, focused, narrow, you know, looking at, at specific cultural dynamics. And until relatively recently, that's been the kind of dominant way in which historians of science like me have done, have done their history of science. And I really do think that that's brought out a huge shift in the way that we understand science as a cultural phenomenon, and a hugely important shift. And we now know in detail how culture produces knowledge in very, very specific circumstances. But there is something that gets lost in those sorts of stories as well. And that's precisely the, 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 the big picture. So, I mean, I mean, really since the 1960s, if not before. I mean, historians have been increasingly shy of writing those kind of big, long-durée histories because they just seem too ambitious. You, know, you can't do the cultural detail when you're trying to write the history of science from, you know, from the Babylonians or the ancient Chinese or the ancient Greeks through to the present day. It's just kind of, it's, it's sort of too big an ask. But I think the point, yeah, it, we've now arrived at the point where we actually have to start doing things like that mm. again. You know, we have to understand the bigger picture of you know, where science belongs, you know, not just in kind of specific cultures or in our early 21st century culture. We need to understand, I think, that bigger p- picture of science as you know, the process of you know, finding out about the world, of making knowledge as a sort of universal human endeavor in which people you know, from all sorts of different periods, from all sorts of different cultures, have all been interested in, in doing this. And all of that has fed in, ultimately, to our understanding of the modern world and the place that science occupies in 21st century culture. Does, uh, does confidence play into it or like you mentioned the 50s 60s obviously the you know new movements in social history and looking at uh disenfranchised peoples and not looking at meta narratives or larger stories and grand sweeping history is it is it do we have the confidence now to say that we can construct a book on the history of science that's more broad and sweeping do we is it, are, are we gaining more confidence to be able to tell those stories in a different way now? I'm, I, mean, I, mean, I, mean, I, I mean, I think that we are. We've moved on from the point where, if you like, as historians of science, we needed to, you know, we, you know, we needed to show the culturedness of science. Mm. You know, I think you know, we've done that. I mean, no historian of science worth her salt would 
you know, deny that cult, you know, that science is a you know, is, is a cultural phenomenon and needs to be understood as such. Right. So I think we've moved beyond that point of having to establish this way of thinking about it. And yes, I think we do now. We we, we do have the confidence confidence now. Just as looking at well, how 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 can we how how can we produce you know, big picture history again? I mean, how can we produce you know, those sorts of histories that aren't just about very very kinds of local stories and turn those local stories into parts of larger narrative narratives mm. that, you know, that, you know, that address more broadly you know, the place of, of science in our culture and you know, how it's gotten there. Gotcha. How can we, uh, let's sort of talk next, how'd you get involved with um, editing? And by the way, we should talk about the structure of the book. You can speak to that if you would. How, how'd you get involved in this project? And can we talk a little bit about that? Um, yes, yeah, certainly. I was, approached, I was approached by OUP, Oxford University Press, to see whether I'd be interested in, in leading this project. Um, and I suppose that I was approached because I'd already done a couple of things yeah, that, yeah, that were already starting to take uh, a, a broader look. Um, I'd, I'd published a book know, 10 years or so ago now on a kind of broad history of of, of, of Victorian physics, yeah, which may still sound fairly narrow to you, but... compared to this book, it is. Yeah, but, yeah, but, <laughs> yeah, but, but, yeah, but to my colleagues, that was already quite a kind of broad, ambitious okay. thing. And That's I'd, interesting. Yeah, and I'd co-authored another book called Making Modern Science, which is primarily a, primarily a textbook. Okay. So, so I suppose I had form, so to speak, as somebody who was interested in you know, trying to think about building up these sorts of these, these sorts of bigger narratives. So I was approached by the, by the press, you know, asked to make a pitch. And yes, I, mean, I think I was immediately keen to do this because, well, as I've indicated, I mean, I, I mean, I was already thinking along the lines that, well, you know, we need right. to find ways of, t- of telling bigger stories than the ones that we've been, that we've been telling for the last, the last couple of decades. And this, and this was an opportunity. So no, no, uh, no hesitation, no trepidation, no, I'm like ready to jump in with both feet. Uh, no, I mean, I have, a ha- I have a bad habit of doing that and, <laughs> and occasionally regretting it later. But, okay. Know, I sort of, I mean, I, I like the idea. It, you know, gotcha. it, was, it was challenging. It was an attractive idea. And, you know, maybe we can talk a little bit, a little bit about this later on. It, you know, it was very important to me as well that it was an illustrated okay. history of science because I think illustration and vision and seeing things, if you like, matters quite a lot in the history of science. I started thinking about, well, if I do this, what would it, what would it look like? So I started you know, sort of kind of you know, mapping out you know, sort of, you know, potential, you know, potential areas that, you know, that the chapters would, would focus on. Um, I mean, I think I realized very, very quickly in the game, like, well, technically, you know, that the, the, the book's divided into two parts. In part one, there are a series of, if you like, kind of sort of little chronological chapters on ancient science in the in the Western world, ancient science in the Eastern world, then medieval science in the in the Christian and Isla- in Islamic world, worlds, medieval science in the East, um, the period we call the scientific revolution, and Enlightenment science, 18th century. I realised that I couldn't keep that going throughout the book because you know, once you hit the 19th century. 
and certainly when you hit the 20th century, there's just, yeah, there's just too much. I mean, you couldn't write a chapter on modern science in the same way that you could write a chapter about medieval science. There's just okay. too much stuff. So I thought the best way to approach the second half of the book, you know, when we approached modern science, it was instead to have a series of thematic chapters, which would try, if you like, to capture you know, the, the different sorts of ways in which science is done, as opposed to looking at specific sciences. So I wrote, so I was going to write my chapter on experimental cultures, looking at experiment and laboratories, the notion of these and other places where you go to find out about the world. So a chapter about you know, sort of field science, you know, science that isn't in the lab, in the lab you know, that's done on boats or out on the savannah or on the prairies or under the sea or whatever, which raises its own problems about you know, how do you make knowledge in those places. Then chapter about you know, science in space, chapter about the origins of life, about you know, the rise of theory, chapters about communicating science, you know, which, were, you know, which were designed to give a kind of broader picture of, kind of, you know, of themes rather than sort of try to continue the chronological story of the, of, the, of the first half of the book. Excellent, yeah. And I think that what you've done here too, um, we should make this clear, as you mentioned, you wrote a chapter um, in the second half, part two, but you re- you've really assembled here almost like an all-star team of specialists to speak, of, if you would speak a bit about how you went about assembling this group and the, maybe we could talk too about the challenges involved in that uh, and how you went about organizing this. Um, well, as, I mean, as I as I was thinking to myself, well, you know, what what, you know, what are these chapters going to be? What sort of right. you know, what are, what, you know, what, are, what sort of things are going to be involved? Then, obviously, in that process, I thought, well, you know, if there's going to be a chapter on Enlightenment science, you know, who would you know, who who would be the people to approach to, to to write something like that? Because it's important that they not just be great historians and great specialists, specialists on their period. Yeah, they also had to be people who could write, mm. and I knew could write yeah, accessibly and interestingly for, for a wide audience. Because yeah, 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 this, yeah, this isn't the sort of book, this isn't the sort of thing that you know, professional academic historians usually write. Yeah. Mm. When, you know, when I write my academic papers, I'm usually addressing an academic audience. And even though one tries to write as sensibly as possible, it's very easy to slide into kind of jargon and academic shorthand when you're you know, when, you know, when you're addressing a a, you know, a group of official, fellow academics who right. know that language as well. You know, this book couldn't be like that. This book, you know, I you know, I want this book to have as wide an audience as possible, as many people as can. You know, everybody should read. The Oxford Illustrated History of Science. And that means that it had to be written by people who really knew how to write. So that, that, was, the, that was the starting point. And from then on, you know, once, the, once the book had been given the, the, the green light by Oxford University Press, it was a question of emailing and persuading and persuading and emailing and cajoling <laughs> and... And irritating people sufficiently, I hope, so that so, you know, so that in the end, 
I mean, not always, you know, not always the first people that I approach, but you know, in the end, you know, after a lot of cajoling, a lot of email, a lot of, yes, I really think that you can do this, I ended up with, I think, an, an excellent, a really, really excellent team of authors. You know, you know, these are all historians who are, you know, who are world-renowned specialists in their field, and they've, and, yeah, and they've brought their specialism to bear on these individual chapters. And they've written a set of texts that I think are marvellous. I'm, I'm extremely proud of, mm. my, of my contributors. And, yeah, I'm, well, this is, this is a highly readable text. I, I think we ought to emphasize that. This is, and it's, it's interesting, too. Even it's, it's, it's a work that it can be seen as a reference piece. It can be seen on an individual essay, almost like a, a festriff, if you will, to science. Uh, they can be read individually. Um, it's not uh, he- so much heavily cited with endnotes or footnotes that it overwhelms. Um, it's got a lot of applicability uh, with the way in which you've constructed it. So I, I totally agree with the way you went about it. I'm not the same I mean, I mean, the, I mean, the accessibility really mattered, and I mean, as you say, it's 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 a book that, you know, if I've done my job properly, can be read in 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 a whole in a whole load of different ways. It it can be a reference book, it can, it can even be a textbook. Mm-hmm. Um, people can, you know, readers can you know, pick up on individual chapters. I mean, if you really want to, you know, if you if you really want to know about you know, science in the in the medieval Far East. Then, you know, th- then there's that chapter, and it right. gives you a great introduction to the topic. You know, there's a list of further readings so you can find out more stuff. So, yes, yes, so, so, so each one of the chapters are, are self-contained in that respect. But I mean, I also wanted it to have you know, a very particular narrative arc, if you like. I wanted it to right. cover particular sorts of things, and you know, I wanted it to be something that could also be read. You know, as a whole, yeah, you know, that somebody, right. you know, that somebody could sit down, you know, start reading my introduction, and work their way through until they finish off with what is the last chapter? Charlotte Slay's chapter on communicating science, right. and there is a set, you know, there, and there is a satisfying and coherent read all the way through. And I mean, I well, think, I mean, I hope that it's there is achieved that. Yeah, well, and also too, this is this is the other aspect of this is as you're as you're conducting or cajoling or uh or levering whichever kind of uh, adjective you want to use uh, uh, the action and involved this is also as you mentioned an Ill, meant to be an illustrated history and it seems to me that they're kind of in when historians construct you know monographs books that they're 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 writing um, it seems like images, and speak to this if you could, uh, images that are kind of of two kind. Either they're, they're sort of fillers and backgrounds of a bunch of dead guys, or they're actually incorporated and objects of material culture incorporated into the text. And I think that's what you were trying to do here. But, I mean, if you could speak to that. Um, okay. Yes, yeah. I mean, I think. I mean, I think illustrated component. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I mean, I think absolutely so. Um, I mean, in terms of illustrations more generally, um, I mean, as I said a few minutes ago, 
I mean, one of the things that attracted me to this project was that it was going to be an illustrated history. Mm. And I think that matters in particular to the history of science because science in a lot of ways and the ways that science historically is done is a very visual practice, if you like. It's a very visual mm. thing. Um, it's to do, if you like, at a very basic level, you know, you know, the, you know, the, the kind of intuitive way that we as humans, well, certainly we as you know, sort of late modern Western humans think about knowledge. We, we kind of make that link between knowing and seeing. You know, we, you know, we say we see when we mean we understand. And I think certainly historically, seeing things has been the way of finding out about the world. Yes, yes, yes. So seeing, visualizing matters as something that matters in the history of science. It's through seeing, it's through making nature visible. I mean, one way of defining what it is a science does is you know, science makes nature visible to us right. in different sorts of ways. So, you know, so, you know, so vision matters. So having an illustrated history and trying to make those illustrations a kind of integral part of the history was, was, was a very important goal for, for the project as a whole. And, you know, and you know, we have you know, all sorts of illust- you know, illustrations of all sorts of, all, all sorts of things. You know, we have illustrations of, of instruments, you know, the, you know, the objects that practitioners in the past you know, used to generate knowledge. And very often these are you know, you know, these are aesthetically beautiful objects. Right. I mean, a, you know, a, 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 a 17th century astrolabe or, I mean, or even a 19th century microscope or a or a telescope, yeah, are beautiful things. Yeah, they're made by craftsmen who, yeah, who want their, yeah, yeah, who, yeah, who want these instruments to be beautiful, who want them to be pleasing to the eye. So, yeah, those are great. Yeah, there, yeah, there are there are illustrations, yeah, depicting the ways in which people and people in the past understood the world mm-hmm. around them. Yeah, what the heavens were like. You know, what humans were like. There are illustrations that show, if you like, science in action. I think that's one of the things that you know, I and I think all of the contributors were, were, you know, were keen to emphasize. You know, science is something that's made through human activity. So in the medieval chapters, you, know, you, you have these amazing pictures of, of, of texts, of writing, of the human act of writing and, and creating and transmitting knowledge. You have... Images from you know, some of the you know, from the, from the modern chapters of you know, sort of Jacques Cousteau, I think, you know, sort of, you know, going down in the diving bell. You know, it's it's you know, it's 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 the man of science as action man, if like out there in the world doing things. There are you know, there are, there are, there are very very few sort of you know, images of heads, if you like. In fact, I think one I think one of the very few images of you know, a portrait is in is in my chapter. And if you look at it, you'll notice that it's actually a picture of a portrait. Right. You know, it's a picture of the picture. And it's, it's a portrait of William Perkins, basically the guy who invents the, 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 the first artificial dye. And he's there, there he is in the portrait, you know, holding this swathe of mauve cloth. Mauve is the artificial dye that, that he created out of, out of coal tar in the 1850. So, so, so that image is, is, isn't just saying, look, here's a picture of... Yeah, here's a picture of the inventor of the first artificial dye. This mm. is a picture that tells you something about how that's then 
made part of culture in the 19th century. Any, uh, any challenges in, in not being able to get certain images that you guys wanted to have? We didn't. I mean, we didn't end up with, you know, with, with, with the wish list that, that, that we started out with. But, I mean, we knew, gotcha. I mean, we, we, we knew that that was, that was never going to be possible. I mean, images cost money. They do. And uh, you can't always... You know, you, and you know, there, are, there are matters of you know, some permissions and, and getting rights. And I think in one or two cases we couldn't use an image because in the end we just simply couldn't figure out who actually had the rights to it, if you see what I mean. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, so sure. That, well, the reason I ask that question is because it, in my own work it's you know trying to fit images into to text is is a challenging one because there may be a specific image that you want, but you can't get the rights to, or you can't, or it's just, as you mentioned, it's just simply too expensive. Uh, yeah. I think that's something that's always interesting to talk about. Um, it's something I always think about when I, when I read a book and there are images in it. And obviously this is an illustrated history. So that's why I ask. Um, yeah, as I say, I mean, it's, we, no, we didn't get, we didn't get everything that we wanted. Or you know, yeah. we needed to work around a little bit and get something that was similar, but you know, not not quite what we would just you know, just just simply because of those mm. of, of those of those practical issues. And you know, there isn't really much that you can that that you can do about that. I mean, if you really can't figure out who to approach for the rights, then you can't you can't use the text. You can't, right, you absolutely. Can't, you can't use use the image if they want to charge you. Several thousand pounds, several thousand dollars for the t- for the for, for the rights to use the image. Then, well, in a book like this, you probably can't use it because <laughs> that's the end you know, of it. You know, OUP has a budget, and yes, and that's of it. And yeah, you know, to stretch out across all the chapters, and you, know, you can't spend you can't spend several thousand on a, on a single image. I mean, in part, I mean, yeah, that's one of the interesting things about working on this kind of project. You. You, I mean, you get these kind of interesting behind-the-scenes views, if you like, of of the process of production that you might not necessarily get. I mean, certainly, as you say, if you, if you open the book as a reader, you know, just the same way as you know, when you when you look at a TV program, you don't really you tend not to think much about well, you know, what went into you know what's what's the practicalities of of, of doing this. I mean, doing something like this project, well, I had, you know, well, I had to think about things like images in ways that I hadn't had. Had to before. Now you start realizing. Well, yeah, it's it's a practical it's a practical business. You know, the same way that you know, when I sort of occasionally do sort of bits and pieces for, for mm. TV, I'm absolutely fascinated by the process because, I mean, I mean, you 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 see, you, know, you see the work that goes into making, you know, what's going to be a seamless few minutes of interview, or what have you on TV. Mm. It takes a lot of it, you know, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of repetition. It takes a lot of effort. And actually, that's one of the things I'm interested in in science as well. The kind yeah, of, yeah. You know, the work, the effort, the drudgery, if you like, you know, that goes into Absolutely. producing you know, the cultural artifact that we call science. You know, the huge well, I, work I, by all sorts of different people that go into making it. Well, and I think that's what's interesting, too, about this book is that you've, you've, you're almost uh, a conductor, you know, getting the orchestra to come together and especially about the decisions that you made early on. And I want to talk about, kind of get into the heart of the table of contents and the way in which what you have in here. Maybe we can speak about some of the highlights in the time we've got left. 
uh, that that are in here because there's some really interesting um, sort of sections to discuss. But trying to get that be that concert master and get everybody to work on the same page. And, and like I said, the decisions that you made early on about the trajectory of how this book was going to be put together um, really must have informed the the end result. Um, I, I mean, I hope so, yes. I mean, because, you know, as, as, as we've discussed earlier, writing this kind of big history is, you know, is, is a relatively rare thing for historians of science, or indeed any historians, to do. Yeah. But, you know, there, there, there's, there's a trend in that direction now. I mean, I, I mean, I needed to think quite carefully yeah, about you know, what, you know, what the arch is going to be, what the trajectory is going to be, what, you know, what's going to be, what's going to be covered. And I mean, if, I mean, a few decisions were made for quite you know, explicit reasons. Um, you know, to to, cho- to choose one example, I was very, I was very anxious indeed that the chapter on medieval science should be a chapter on science in. The Christian and Islamic worlds, right? Okay. Medieval period, because also just yeah, it's very, very important. Actually, it's very important in the current political and cultural climate to show that science came from all those cultures. You know, it's not. It's it's not that there's Islamic science and there's Western science. It, yeah, it's all part of the same thing. You know, knowledge and information, techniques, practices, ideas, everything is all moving back and forth you know, around and about the Mediterranean or the Middle East. <coughs> Excuse me, during the medieval period. You know, it's, 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 not the, it's, it's not the sole pro- property, if you like, of mm. a particular culture. It's the property of all sorts of different cultures during this period. And I thought that that was rather an important point to make. So I was very keen on having that chapter in, in the form that, that it had. And, you know, as I said, I wanted to start out chronologically. I wanted to have these, these themes toward, towards the end you know, to show the, the multiplicity of mm-hmm. science, you know, the different sorts of things that science is, I suppose. Well, and I think, I think you did a very good job looking at the different regions, which, you know, really draws upon a, a long-standing sort of commitment, especially in world history, regionalism, but as you said, to offer also examples of comparative approaches. I mean, let's face it, I mean, East Asia is a pretty isolated area when it comes regionally to science until the Silk Roads open up. So, I mean, there's there's things you could do here regionally that would make a lot of sense, but you there's no way you could neglect a, a, a Western Europe um combination of that along with the Islamic worlds and the Islamic empires at the time. So it makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think, yeah, I think it's important to show in the sense that, I mean, I mean, p- I mean part of the overarching aim is, you know, is exactly you know, to show the kind of human universality. Of science. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, pe- you know, people are doing this everywhere. People are trying to figure out you know, what nature is, what their place in nature is, and actually how can, you know, how can we manipulate nature? For all sorts of different reasons, you know, political, economic, cultural, whatever. How can we produce things? Yeah, that's part of. Yeah, that, yeah, that's part of what we as humans do, I think. And you know, showing that at work everywhere, I think, was an important goal. In this uh, seeking origins part one that you 
you have the different regions and areas that interact. Did you have specific sort of marching orders to each of the authors about thematic uh, sort of threads that you wanted to be present? Or did you kind of just say, hey, I'm going to turn you loose and you do what you need to do to tell this story? Um, I mean, I, I gave the authors a relatively free hand. I, I mean, I was clear, I think, that, I, you know, that there were particular things that I'd like them to talk about, you know, particularly to do with, as, as we've been talking about, you know, the circulation of knowledge, you know, how, how knowledge moved around you know, right. the ancient, the medieval, the early modern world. But at the same time, they're the specialists. They're, you know, they're the experts. You know, I mean, one of the, you know, one of the things that I hope make this book work you know, is that it has been written by people who, you know, who have the particular expertise to write the the, the specific chapters. So, you know, I mean, in the end, you know, though, I mean, I, 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 I mean, I have my own interests. I mean, there are things that I think that are important. You know, I'm not an expert on ancient Greek or ancient Chinese or medieval Islamic science. So there's a limit to the extent to which I can to which which I can prescribe my authors, if you like. But yes, 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 so they they had a a general sense, I think, from your general question. These are the sorts of things that I want the chapters to discuss. But within those limits, it, it was that, you know, the, you know, the chapters were, you know, were their babies. And, you know. Yeah, yeah, you want, to make them, you want to make them pliable, you want to make them fluid and not so regimented. I, I don't think I'm suggesting that. I, it just seems like that would be, you would have some marching orders about specific things that you'd like to see thematically. Um, yes, as I, said, so. I, 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 I wanted particular points made. Yeah. Right. If, yeah, if it made sense to make them. In the context of the particular chapters, if you see if you see what I mean, and I think yeah, and, and I think that by and large, I mean it's it's worked pretty well. I think it all hangs together very nicely. And I think there, I mean I think and I think that there are those threads that you know, to do with kind of something you know, circulation, the sort of materiality of science, the importance of seeing. I mean I think right. I, I think that those sorts of themes do carry through really pretty 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 successfully. Uh, the second, uh, well, in the time we've got left too, I want to talk about the second part um, because the, the, th- the themes that you chose in this section uh, sort of kicking off with the, the piece that you wrote and then moving through the different uh, sorts, of, uh, sorts of themes. I want to talk about those. What, what are some of the highlights in this uh, part two that you'd like to, to kind of accentuate that you really like the way that it came off? I like my chapter, obviously, because I think that I think that I did a I think that I did a pretty good job. I think that the chapter on exploring nature is a particularly important one, particularly because it kind of get it kind of gets us away from this notion, which is the notion that I explore in my chapter, of of science as something that works by experiment. It's done in laboratories. Its knowledge is produced in these kind of in some ways, very kind of artificial, disciplined, highly controlled environments. And yes, I mean, that's where, that's where physics comes from. That's where chemistry comes from. That's where bits of biology comes from. But 
lots of people do their science in circumstances where they have neither those constraints or those advantages, if you like. Yeah. Gotcha. If, you're, yeah, if you're interested in animal behavior and your research involves sitting around in the savannah or sitting around on the prairies or sitting around yeah, wherever, yeah, surrounded by the animals that you're studying, then yeah, you're, not in labo- you're not in a laboratory. You, you don't have the ability to control your environment in the way that, that a labor- laboratory scientist might do. So you have, to, yeah, you, you have to find new ways of producing knowledge. And I think that that chapter explores that. A nice juxtaposition with yours. And then again, I mean, I, I, th- I, think the, the, I think the communicating science chapter is very yeah. important as well. Because again, science has never been done in isolation. Science has always had an audience, and an audience you know, sort of beyond and outside the audience of, of practitioners. So it's important to think, and it's important for historians to think, it is important, it's important, I think, for the book's readers to think, about the ways in which science has historically been communicated and how science is communicated now. Because you know, that's, you know, that's how most of us you know, get to know what, you know, what, you know, what, what, science, what, what science we do know. We right. get to know science through popular books. We get to know science through popular TV shows, through, you know, museums. Yeah, through, through yeah. museums, through exhibitions, through... Exploratoria. Yeah, those those are the places where we encounter science. And again, I think it's important to think of those historically, where they came from, what their point was, and you know, what happens if you like to to science in translation. So I think, yeah, and I think, I mean that, I mean that really, really matters now. I think in right. ways that it, it, I mean, it's always mattered, but. It matters more than ever now because I think we 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 live in the, we live in a period when it's very really really seriously important that we get that we get science communication right, right because you know, our futures in very very many ways depend on people understanding what science is and not yeah you know, not yeah you know, not I mean there, I mean there are different kinds of myths about science if you like I mean there are if you like different sorts of fairy tales. About science. Mm-hmm. Now, one fairy tale is the kind of, well, you know, science has nothing to do with culture. It's just simply a matter of, you know, of following, following the scientific method and producing truths, and that's going to kind of carry on regardless. <laughs> right. Well, you know, that ain't so. I mean, the history of science shows us that that isn't so. That science is a very specific cultural phenomenon that flourishes in particular kinds of cultural environments. And if we kind of subscribe to fairy tales that tell us, oh, well, you know, science will carry on regardless. And it's not going to carry on regardless, and then we're going to be in mm. trouble because our culture depends on science for its for for its survival you know, in ways that you know, more so than any other culture in the past. You know, we depend on science; we're entirely surrounded by and dependent upon artifacts that are created by science, and you know, we need to know where that comes from, and we need to understand the implications of that. We see. So yeah, that's why hmm. yeah, looking at the history of science communication, I think, is is particularly important. You also uh, spend a bit of time 
a couple of the authors sort of mentioned big science. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and how that plays into the story of science and history of science? Um, yeah, again, I think it's it's. I mean, I mean, what historians tend to call big science. Yeah, you know, that's that science as, as it was. Done, I mean, really largely after after the Second World War. No one can mm. see the origins of big science going back earlier and earlier. Um, looking at particle accelerators, you know, the things that scientists are used to sort of you know, smash subatomic particles together to produce yet more subatomic particles is a nice example. When people like Chadwick and Rutherford and Curie at the beginning of the 20th century start doing things like nuclear physics, yet they're, you know, they're, you know, they're sending out streams of electrons and other sort of you know, subatomic particles and seeing what happens. You know, all that apparatus would fit onto a desk pretty much. Right, right. A, a, a modern particle accelerator <laughs> yes. is huge. Is kind of, you know, some, yeah. It's you know, tens of miles in, in diameter. You know, that's, that's big science. If you like. I mean, that's one of the major phenomena in terms of the history of science of the 20th century is that science started requiring more and more resources, more and more people, more, more equipment. You know, literally big science. Hmm. So that you know, at the beginning of the 20th century, you know, there, there are really relatively few people who could be described as professional scientists. Hmm. You know, by the end of the 20th century, there are millions of people who can be described hmm. as professional scientists, you know, working on huge projects like CERN in, in Europe, for example. Hmm. And that kind of hammers home the, the message once again. Yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah, these, the, yeah, these are people. This, yeah, this, these are lots of people. All sorts of people contribute to the you know, to, to the business, to the process of making science. And you know, what they produce, you know, big science, is is all around us. You know, we're you know, we're having this conversation on different sides of the Atlantic, exactly, you know, because of big science. And right. you know, whilst on the one hand it might appear to be this, you know, this very, very robust institutions, you know, sort of billions and billions of dollars, it's also in some respects quite fragile. And you know, we need to kind of remember that and remember that even the biggest science needs to be supported, needs to be maintained. Otherwise, you know, we, you know, you know, we lose the knowledge that we have, we lose our ability to, you know, to have the culture that we currently have. Yeah. Do you think um, uh, certain perspectives about what you've, you and your colleagues have written here, uh, let's say a hundred years from now, how how do you think people will look at this text, particularly on the second half, um, and the themes there? What what are some suppositions that you might offer on that? Um, it's 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 always a fascinating question. I mean, so you can say, well, yeah. Because you know, we're living in history, and assuming that all goes well, there will be historians a century or so from now, and they'll be, they'll be looking back at us in much the same way that we look back at you know, what was happening at the, at the beginning of the 20th century. Mm. Um, I, th I mean, I think that the main themes of the second half of the book will, will still be recognizable so to speak. I mean, I mm. think the emphasis on how different sorts of places became associated with different sorts of science will be, will be recognized. 
I think that that kind of emphasis on how science gets to be public will still be recognized as something that you know, that needs yeah that needs thought that needs to be that needs to be understood um, I think again you know, that you know, that notion of you know, of science and big science is something that's that's increasingly dependent on culture but also has a culture that's entirely dependent on on it will, mm. you know, will if we survive the next century be absolutely something that historians of science has, uh, a century from now will recognize okay um before I let you go, uh, I want to do some. I want to do some. I, I, I try and do this quite a bit. Uh, I want to do some rap, rapid fire. Are you up for that? Uh, I'll do my best. Okay. Well, there. I, I don't know that there are any wrong answers, so you don't need to <laughs> sound so concerned. Um, let's let's go through some of these because I think they're quite telling. I, I sort of want to start. This is a seg nice segue with what I just asked you. What, what do you think the next major event in science is? The next major event, I think the next major event yeah. in science is going, to have, is going to have to be decide whether or not to use geoengineering to deal with climate change. Okay. I think we're arriving at that point where that sort of decision has to be made. Uh, wildest prediction about the future from the Victorian era? Ooh, wildest prediction, but... It, one of the things that fascinates me about these, these, these I mean, you, you have these kind of images of you know, the world in the year 2000. They're all dressed like Victorians still. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, living underwater, That's great. living under the sea, I think is, you get all these, these pictures of, you know, sort of okay. late Victorian ladies and gentlemen strolling around under the sea wearing, wear, wear, wearing air masks, and I think that's, that's fascinating. Yeah, that's it. that says a lot about them, about the dress, I would suppose. We could make some interesting lines of commentary about that, now, but they didn't change it. Uh, well, no, I mean, it's an interesting insight in, into what we think is kind of permanent about our culture and what we don't think is permanent. Yeah, the, gotcha. no, yeah, the knowledge might change, but yeah, we're still going to behave and dress in particular ways. Okay, this is like the slowest rapid fire ever. But uh, Okay, so let me see if I can pick up the pace. Uh, Darwin or Spencer? Darwin. Einstein or Bohr? Einstein. Who'd you like to most have dinner with, dead or alive? Ooh, pauses. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. William Thompson, Lord Kelvin. Ah, okay. All right. Interesting. Favorite Doctor Who? Oh, no question. John Pertwee. Oh, okay. Oh, that, 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 that shows you my age, basically. There we go. John, we Pertwee, go. John Pertwee was my Doctor Who. Excellent. Okay. Who's the most hardcore scientist from history you could, uh, you could name, in your opinion? Oh, well, the most serious, single-minded, uh, Newton. Newton. Okay. All right. Uh, Gladstone or Disraeli? Ooh. I ought, to say, I ought to say Gladstone, I suppose. <laughs> That's great. That's great. I like well, that. Well, Disraeli would okay. have been more fun, but Gladstone's a serious guy. Okay, right. Let's, let's keep it serious. Um, most committed, and this is not a play on words, most committed British monarch to science? Charles II, since he 
was really the, the Merry Monarch. He right. was the first patron of the Royal Society. He did. Okay. He did found the Royal Observatory. Interesting. Okay. Uh, stupidest monarch. <laughs> when it came to science. <laughs> if you're if you're willing to go on the record, you want a list. George the Fourth. <laughs> the Regent. Yep. Okay. You know, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you about the book, uh, Oxford Illustrated, Yeah, History of Science. I, I, I encourage everybody to get their hands on a copy of this. I think this is really a great piece of scholarship. You've got the perfect, in my mind, you, you've got the perfect combination of historical scholarship and, and high readability. That's something I'm really interested in and keen on, is people producing things that are highly readable. So I, I commend your efforts on this. Well, thanks very much indeed. And, uh, and thanks, for, uh, thanks for listening today, everybody, on uh, New Books in Science, and we'll catch you again next time. Take care. Bye-bye.